All right, y'all, welcome back to another week of the Unfazed, Unedited Podcast, where we provide commentary on complicated topics in an uncomplicated format. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold. I go by she, her, hers pronouns, and I have Dr. Lisa with me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Hi, everyone. My pronouns are she, hers, too. I'm excited to be back for another episode. Um, We've got some exciting stuff to talk to you about and we are both sitting on our hands so as not to do too much of this so that we don't knock over the microphone so exactly exactly yes. all right so how about we jump right in to phase one yeah let's get into phase one because this has been getting my goat for months now as a small business owner minority owned uh, business a woman-owned business and y'all please help us. We we love it when y'all reach out to us for our services, whether it is DEI work, whether it's evaluation and assessment work, which is Lisa's wheelhouse, uh, maybe it's facilitation, you name it. The work itself is the easiest part of the process. But the back-end procurement just, it, it gives me headaches. And I'm constantly learning that it's kind of like when I was a kid, Lisa, where we had that toy where you're trying to put pegs in the right shape hole. You're trying to put like a square peg in a round hole type situation when you're trying to fit a small business into a large client's ecosystem, especially when it comes to finance. And so, you know, given that, it is just the biggest headache because the procurement practices of most of our larger clients does not work for people like us. So, so I'll give you a great example. A smaller client had a smaller kind of a foundation type business model. And I was literally paid the second I logged off. <laughs> I saw it transferred over into the business account when I get my little emails pop up, right? I have another organization I'm working with, which has a few zeros behind it, and it has taken almost an entire quarter to get paid, and they're not the only ones. And so, you know, for us that run small businesses, I just am tired, Lisa. I am tired of the rhetoric of wanting to work with us, uh, mismatching with processes that simply do not work right. for organizations right. like ours. Have you experienced that as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I mean, particularly with more structured institutions like higher education, for example, they have such entrenched payment processes that, you know, there's no negotiating, right? And even, <clears throat> excuse me, even with organizations that address the small business piece, they're like, well, we'll pay you within 30 days instead of 45 days, which is our usual thing. But 30 days isn't actually that helpful right when you're you have cash flow issues um and then the other thing that's interesting is i do also see this from other nonprofits where they're smaller themselves right and so they do struggle with cash flow certainly i understand that but they expect consultants to do the entire project like months and months and months of work and then yeah. they'll pay you in a lump sum at the conclusion, which is just mind blowing to me because it's like, well, sure. how do you think that I live, right? Like I'd right. need to pay a mortgage and right. food and other bits and pieces. And if I had kids, I'd have expenses there. So how can I go nine months, essentially free labor 
Yes. I, yes. I don't I don't understand that at all. It's like a yeah, it's a complete mismatch, but I have seen that over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then too, which you understand because I've worked on your projects and you've worked on my projects and being very cognizant of making sure that your subcontractors are paid as well because most small businesses don't need someone with specific expertise on a full-time payroll, you need them as project-based collaborators. And so given that, of course, you know, let's say it's the trickle-down effect where uh, Lisa has contracted me as a subcontractor to work on her project. Well, it's not fair for Lisa to have to try to pay me, if that's even possible, when she hasn't received payment for both of us. And so, you know, I just really feel like it has become so much of a, a love-hate relationship, if you will, because usually those larger organizations do have larger budgets uh, to be able to afford the services that we provide on a much grander scale, but not if you have to wait three, four, five, six months for those payments. Um, and on top of that, usually, because Lisa, we've run into this before, where not only is payment possibly at the end of the project, it's also their satisfaction as well. So are they satisfied with a report, for example, or are they satisfied with outcomes, which we've already probably told them you're not going to be able to measure any of that for maybe even years after we've concluded the, the project itself. And so I think what really needs to happen is those larger organizations need to work with other uh, consultants that specialize in this area, or at the very least, look through your database of vendors, talk to your vendors that are smaller, minority-owned, woman-owned, and find out how can you streamline the process so that you can make things better, better and easier for them because you can't say that you want us to do business with you, but then the processes make it so difficult or almost impossible for us to seamlessly run our businesses, so we just choose not to. We just choose not to. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to have to make that choice, but sometimes we find ourselves there. Yeah, and it's that um, incongruence between kind of stated, we would really like to work with a contractor or a consultant from a minority-owned, woman-owned, um, veteran-owned business, and then those processes that do not align. But I think the other piece is when we talk about small businesses, I don't know the parameters, but I do know that small businesses can have hundreds of employees and still be considered a small business. You and I are small businesses right. like one person with some con with some people that we contract with. Sure. Like so that is is small. <laughs> you know, right. I would say like less than 10 people is small. I wouldn't if I started to get to 20, 30 people even, I don't know that I would consider myself a small business. I mean, sure, that's small as compared to Microsoft. Right. right, but right. that Microsoft exactly. is gargantuan, right? But it just mm. how do we even define small? And then if you're thinking that a quote unquote small business that has a hundred employees, um, they're not going to have any problem with cash flow and floating, you know, payment to various um, mm -hmm. constituents. You're really limiting yourself because a lot of women-owned and minority-owned businesses are not that big, right? That's they're right. Just not. That's right. Exactly. Well, and then too, you know, for me, we, we probably need to even query small business, right? Because I remember when you and I, we, we had a text exchange right after um, 
right after the pandemic and businesses were applying for these PPP loans, which I didn't even go into the details of because my business was not qualified for that. But what was interesting was that they mentioned small businesses were eligible to apply. Well, small, it can depend on the number of people that work in your organization, but it also can depend on the uh, income. And so, for example, I remember reading an article about the L.A. Lakers being considered a small business and eligible to apply for a PPP loan. But then as soon as they got called out for essentially not needing it, they returned it. Now, I don't know if they would have returned it without the pressure. But what I am saying is that we have to think about what a small business truly is and how they function. I'm sorry, but if you check me and Lisa's bank accounts, it's not going to function the way the, Lisa, the, the LA Lakers bank accounts function, nor should they. We're all considered in the same pool if you're focusing on how the United States um, defines a small business. So I think you know we need to get more critical on who really counts um, as a small business and what barriers they have when it comes to that cash flow issue that floating issue and even too lisa um thinking about um when it comes to those employees if you're a solopreneur or close to it small business that owner may be managing their own financial everything you know invoices everything or they may contract out to someone. And so if that person they're contracting out to you has to chase and chase and chase and chase money, you're slowly but surely eating away at the revenue that they already earned. So you're still, it's like a double whammy. Yes, yes, yeah. Or if they um, charge a fee for having to pay directly into your bank account versus sending a check, right? Ugh, I mean, yes, yes, what, yes, are you yes. do what are you doing there, right? Like you're, why? <laughs> Yeah, why? <laughs> why? Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I think that the smaller businesses get sacrificed quite a bit in order to standardize a process that's not meant to be standardized when you compare small, midsize or large businesses. I mean, you know, all the paperwork that I've ever filled out when it came to this type of work made it it made me feel like I should be like a contractor that's building a building on their property, not someone that's giving services, you know, over maybe a couple of months. It just, it just did not seem to fit. I'm like, my organization does not fit this model, but it seems to be my only choice in order to get payment for what I'm clearly uh, qualified to do. So it's just frustrating. I'll leave it there, Lisa. It's super frustrating. Yeah. So if you're listening to this pod and you have some control over procurement practices and the definition of small business and how small businesses get paid, then this is an equity issue, right? Like put your money where your mouth is and really make these opportunities accessible for organizations yes. like us. Um, but that is actually a great segue into our next phase, phase two, because um, Shauna has been bugging me for some time to get myself registered as a woman-owned business, both with the federal government and with the state of Colorado, right? Mm -hmm. I just That's done right. It. <laughs> That's right. And, and how many years have you been in business, Lisa? <laughs> I know, right? It's really bad. But I did actually go to the website and look, and what blew me away, right? So again, so these classifications are business classifications that exist to support um, minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, veteran-owned businesses, um, businesses owned by folks with disabilities. There's a number of classifications and the mm. intention is to create opportunities for these um, organizations that have these classifications to get like local, state, and federal contracts, right? Right. And right. so I looked 
and I'm not remembering which, but uh, at the state level in Colorado and at the city of Denver level, there was a fee for some of those um, applications, right? And I can't what? remember what the fee was, but it wasn't insignificant. Like it wasn't 20 bucks. I think it was yeah. over a hundred dollars. It might even have been um, multiple hundreds of dollars. Uh -huh. But I just remember thinking to myself, okay, so this whole process, is designed to create opportunities for organizations that are run by people that have been historically excluded from local state and federal contracts might not have a lot of cash flow you know see phase one that we just talked about right and you're gonna charge me hundreds of dollars to apply for the classification so you've just excluded a percentage of organizations that you're trying to help like I don't even understand that. <laughs> Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Well, and you know, so Lisa, this is what, I, again, I'm not at the state level, so I don't quite understand it. But what I do know is that for the majority of folks that I know in other states that are also business owners, when they apply for the disadvantaged business, woman owned, et cetera, disadvantaged and or, uh, how can I say woman owned businesses, they weren't charged anything. And they also applied on a consolidated form that went through their department of transportation. So for me here in Maryland, it would be called MDOT, for example. Um, and so given that everything went through that. And what was interesting is that I, there were three check boxes at the top of my form. One uh, was for disadvantaged business. One was for, I believe, woman owned business. And then the other one, was for if I had specific services that I wanted to provide at the airport, right? So to me, I'm thinking once again, what, what did I just say? Square peg, round hole type thing. Again, we're trying to fit everyone. And I see once again, what the state is trying to do. They're saying, let's streamline this so everything can be all in one place for all types of identity groups that own businesses and put it here. I get that. But at the same time, I'm like, if I had to pay for that, thank goodness it was free in Maryland. Um, if I had to pay for that, I just simply would not do it. And it took me, what, I started in 2016 and I just applied this year to get mine as well. I would have never done it. If it was a fee involved, I would have never done it because yes, I want access to the opportunity to do business um, in the state. And Lisa, you and I, we've uh, responded to RFPs that gave, for example, extra consideration and points uh, if you had this certification in your home state, even though the, the business, the work may be elsewhere. We do it for those reasons. But if it was solely to access business in my state and I don't even know if it's going to be what I do based on my code, mm, that's that's not an insignificant amount of money, like $100 or less, if not free, in my opinion, $100 or less. No but then what are you even what are you charging for right like it feels like right. a fee just to have a fee um yeah, yeah, and i yeah. think it was denver i think it was the city of denver i think the state of colorado also went through the department of transportation which is also very confusing to me why would i need to get registered for the state as right. a woman-owned business through cdot like i don't get that but right. i didn't dig into the reasons for it but it just seemed odd yeah. but um the other thing was the applications are long and convoluted too right like, I understand you need to demonstrate in some way and provide evidence of your status. Like, I don't think, I think that's fine, right? But then again, like, really? I have to pay and it's uh -huh. not a quick 
application oh and ps it'll take us six months to approve that i don't know what the timeline is but i can only imagine it's probably like not a quick process right Mm -mm, mm -mm. so all right lisa i'm going to uh at the risk of flashing back through all the documents that i had to attach so the first thing i did was download the m dot form that tells you you know here's your checklist of things that you need to do fill out this form but you also have a checklist so I did that in the PDF, right? It was one of those PDFs you could fill things into, you know, that type of thing, which I did. I went to the website thinking, yay, I filled out the form. All I should have to do is upload the PDF I just filled out, put the attachments in, boom, we're in business, right? Cool. So it's just like applying for a job, you know, where you fill out the form and then you have to turn around and put it in the fields again. I had to put it in the fields again. So that was the first problem. And then after that, the attachments that were listed on the form, like let's say, for example, which it was a lot of them, let's say there were 10 attachments listed on the form. When I got into the online application, there were 15 to 17 attachments in the online form. So it's this iterative process that takes forever. Um, if you've had your business for a while i'm sorry but exactly how do i prove that i paid for or invested in my business like how do you prove it literally the only thing i had to do and it's even part of my history uh statement for my business plan i literally bought uh, a ten dollar pack of business cards when i got a coupon from vistaprint and started my speaking service before i rolled it out into everything else that i did prove that exactly like how do you prove that i don't know um and then they asked for like uh personal net worth and all these other things oh my gosh and i feel like we're being punished lisa for the people who try to claim this uh eligibility for certification that really should not be there that's what i've concluded yeah so someone like tried to fix the system and so then the system responds to address that one or two people that are bad actors and then everyone else has to suffer. I mean, I see that a lot. State administration, city administration is totally like that. So it does it. So it follows then that the application for small business, minority owned business designation would do that. But again, per our phase one conversation, you have like put all these barriers in the way of organizations that you are intending to help and create equity and access for. And yet your whole infrastructure and system is so bureaucratic that you have basically, you're sending people run in the other direction because the other piece to consider, right, for folks you know, who haven't really thought about these issues before is very small businesses like um, Shauna and I, when we aren't doing billable work, we are not getting paid, right? So if it takes me three hours to apply for the woman-owned business um, designation, then that's three hours of lost income, right? right. And and that's the piece that I think is completely misunderstood. Like we don't have the infrastructure to do all of this quote-unquote non-billable time like a much larger organization does. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's just... It's just shocking to me. Like, I feel like these things should be self-evident if you are trying to increase equity. (laughs) And yet they are not. They're not. not. Lisa, how many times have you and I texted one another and said, hey, I worked all day and I have like one billable hour to show for it. But I worked all day though, right? 
that's our usual and and we're not saying that you know we shouldn't make you know residual income at some point you know in our careers or even as we grow or expand our businesses but for those of us who are in the middle you know we're clearly fending for ourselves thank god we can pay mortgages pay bills feed ourselves etc but at the same time we're not getting mail what's called mailbox money yet we're not getting passive income yet which means that we need to make the best of the hours that we have to work and to your point lisa i'm thinking three hours to fill out the application i don't even want to count how many hours it's taken me to fill out that whole application even with some of the attachments having to print out your statement of your uh personal net worth or some uh attachment taking it to your bank or somewhere else because it has to be notarized before you can then upload it into all of that is hours that you can't hand off to someone else even if you are like the ceo of your company you still have to sign it and notarized in front of someone all those different things it's literally missing the point it's missing the whole point of the process it's it's a shame yeah it's a shame. okay okay you just made me think of um that one state organization that mm -hmm. required applicants for the proposal process to print out nine copies of the application and mail or hand deliver them right ridiculous like, ridiculous absolutely unbelievable they would not accept an email with an attachment i no. mean not only is that just disastrous in terms of like the amount of paper that you're waiting uh, wasting right. what's going to happen to those proposals right they're going to get shredded or whatever it's like just ridiculous like how are you not you're you're asking for a dei consultant and you're like the delivery of the proposal excludes a shit ton of people hello exactly to your point, oh, so, so check this out, y'all. Y'all, I wish we could give you more details, but let's just give you the inequitable details just about submission. Looking for a DEI consultant. If you want to submit your proposal, which had lots of forms and addenda and so forth, which meant it was going to be a pretty large proposal. They wanted nine copies of the proposal, as Dr. Lisa mentioned. But then if you didn't get the actual contract, you had to pay for them to send them back to you or pay to have them shredded. Either way, you paid. Like, you mean to tell me I haven't made a brown penny off of any of this process yet, and I have to pay for my documents going and coming. I got to pay for my documents going and coming. It was the most ridiculous yeah. RFP I have ever seen. And even when that. we asked, if you remember, we, we actually asked, would they... And we pointed out how inequitable it was. And Lisa, you'll be proud to know, I think there was like a cover letter where people who chose not to respond could give reasons why they chose not to respond. Y'all want to read that dissertation I wrote on why we didn't want to respond? The chipping of the hard copies was just one of many problems with that process. But I think you're exactly right. I had almost forgotten about that. It's the pro reading this process like oh it's clear why you need a dei consultant because you don't even see what's problematic about getting a dei consultant through this process yeah, yeah and they Ugh. wanted a small business or they wanted a woman-owned minority-owned business right they want it and you're like oh my goodness right wow wow i'm thinking i thought about this too lisa even if you and i 
were consultants that were literally across the street from potential mm -hmm. client. For printing alone, yes, was going to cost a ridiculous yep. amount of money. Not even the shipping and so forth. In addition to you know the tolls on the environment right. and everything else, I'm like, y'all are missing the point. Yeah. You're you're missing the point. Missing the point. So, needless to say, we didn't go after that one, Lisa. <laughs> we did not. We did not. So oh. trials and tribulations of the disconnect between here we're creating these processes to be more equitable, but at the same time the processes are not equitable. <laughs> Exactly. And then we, as the consultants who clearly see the problem, we we come off as the hard-nosed assholes before we even yeah. get in the door because we have to, it's the power dynamic of, yes, yeah. we want to be considered. Yes. And we're proving our expertise by critiquing your process while we still want to be hired for the job. Yeah. Yeah. So, they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to nah, hear they it. weren't trying to hear it. Mm -mm. Absolutely. Well, look, let, let me talk to you about this. This is my proposed phase three for this episode. I've been toying around with this because I had a great conversation with someone recently um, that was basically seeking some executive coaching. And this wonderful person um, does great work. And what was interesting was that this person is really between a rock and a hard place financially, um, despite, you know, having multiple graduate degrees, one of few minorities in their field, all of that. And what was interesting was, you know, when you get into coaching, one of the first things that you ask is number one, where would you like to start so that they can start sharing your their pain points with you? Um, and then the second piece is what have you what have you attempted thus far and how has it worked for you? Right. And this person talked about some of their financial struggles in connection with their really focused and clear career, um, but yet at the same time, talked about quite beautifully, actually talked about their passion project and how much they care about this particular nonprofit organization, et cetera. And I'm sitting there listening to this person. This person was uh, in a number of different minority groups. I'm not gonna name them because I don't wanna identify the individual. But what struck me was that Overwhelmingly, I see the give, 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 give that comes from minoritized folks, women, people of color, folks that literally don't have it to give, yet they place this, uh, it's kind of like this martyrdom feeling where you have to give even though I don't even have it to give. And I just find it fascinating, um, Lisa, you, you know when I'm trying to kind of mentally uh, relax after a day of doing all the DEI stuff. I watch my favorite food network shows and competitions and everything. I love Chopped. Everybody that knows me knows I love Chopped. And I saw the same thing unrelated um, in that show where the majority of folks that were minorities, women, etc. The first thing they said they would do with the earnings, which I think is like $10,000, $15,000, is to give it away. I'm pouring it back into my nonprofit. I'm uh, giving it to a charity down the street. I'm uh, giving it to whomever, whatever group. And as much as I salute and I feel like that is so admirable, at the same time, some fucked up shit, y'all, because you can't live what you don't yet have. And so how can we sit here and talk about tough to pay the bills, but yet at the same time, you give, 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 give. It's almost as if for us, Lisa, for women, people of color, et cetera, it's almost like shame on you for wanting to earn money, take care of yourself and your family. And that's it. Like, like you're almost the villain if you don't 
gives some of your earnings away. See them do that to white men. I don't see them doing that to men at all. I just don't see it, Lisa. And it's been rubbing me the wrong way because I am that person that would literally give the shirt off my back. But I'm also at a place in my mentality of saying, the more I earn, the more I can choose what I give or not. It's my choice. If I want to give, I will. If I don't, I won't. But I'm not going to like succumb to the pressure. This person I was talking to was succumbing to the pressure. And it sucks. It just, ugh, soapbox for me, soapbox. Yeah, it's that pay it forward, right? Like paying it forward is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. And yet who are the people primarily taking on that philosophy of paying it forward? This isn't obviously universally true, but certainly in my experience, it is the people who have experienced some kind of oppression in their life or have really struggled to make it that feel that extra desire, commitment, obligation to pay it forward, pay back to the community, contribute in some way. And yeah, it subjugates their own kind of basic financial needs for the good of everyone. And that is um, idolized in our culture, right? Like you're such a great person. What a good thing that you've done. So that behavior is encouraged because if that person is like, you know what, I'm not going to donate to any charities this year, or I'm not going to feed this prize winning or, you know, speak a fee back into X, Y, and Z because I need a nest egg for myself, right? I want to put this into my own savings account. Then there's a little bit of a side eye that happens, right? Depending on the communities in which you're in. And I think that experience, yeah, is disproportionately women, folks of color, disabled people that have that experience. That's not to say that white, cisgender, hetero, able-bodied men don't also experience that pressure but i think to a much lesser degree um yeah Yeah. you're right and it's exhausting right it is exhausting it is and you know i've i've heard you know especially that that's one of the things that i really love um about thank goodness you know the situation that we're in so y'all hear about me talk about my sons all the time and how kendrick my youngest wants to be a professional athlete he is in a situation where unlike you know, a lot of the guys that have gone pro, if you ever watched ESPN 30 for 30 broke, that's the best episode I've ever seen ever, where it talks about uh, professional athletes that came into large sums of money. And to that very point, went back to the martyrdom of things like, let me go back to the corner boy that was selling dope in my neighborhood who slid me a few bucks to buy my first pair of cleats for football and let me go buy him a house and maintain him for the rest of his life. That's literally what was happening. And fortunately, my kids will know, will owe no one, you know, if they choose to go that route. But that piece of feeling beholden, because if it wasn't for that dope boy on the corner that gave me the, the money for my cleats, I would have never even thought about going to NFL, NBA, what have you. It's that extra burden and and the, how can I say, the community, the context, the ecosystem that both idolizes it and then shames you if you don't. How dare you be well off? How dare you have a nest egg? How dare you be comfortable when someone else isn't? And I'm like, hold up now, wait a minute. Unless you were sitting up here writing these 3,000 page proposals like me and Lisa have been to make money, then you don't get to determine where we spend our money, right? And so I just think it's it's frustrating, it's sad, it's obnoxious, it's not 
equitable because it's different when you have newer money, new money, newer money. Um, but I noticed it in this conversation and I just thought it deserves some attention because I feel this person and I understand what it feels yeah. like to have a passion project that you want to fully fund. But yet the, at the same time, you're trying to figure out where you're going to get your next meal from. Now we're getting into prioritizing right. care of yourself versus the idolizing piece that you were talking about before. And it, it takes a little bit of time to not care what people think. Um, but it, yeah. even just having to play the, those mental gymnastics of thinking about it, it's heavy. Yeah. And, you know, that this individual is struggling financially and maybe struggling is too strong of a word, but certainly is concerned mm -hmm. about the financials because she's putting the work into this really important nonprofit like mm -hmm. that. That's really sad to me, right? That her yeah. passion is so important to her as it should, as passion should be, I suppose, but to the detriment then of kind of all of the other pieces of her life that would lead to stability yeah, that would yeah. enable her ultimately to grow the nonprofit. Right. So it's kind of, it's mm. like a cycle, you know, it like mm. feeds one thing feeds the other. And then you have this overlay, this cultural overlay around judgment or not about what you're doing, right? Oh, you're so great. Look at you doing this really great thing. What a good yeah. person, right? And that also yeah. feeds the ego. I mean, this it's certainly nice to hear that. And so then you keep doing that, but then your other aspects of your life might suffer, but it's, yeah, it's pretty complicated. And then when you think about people who have not historically had access to wealth, right? There's not generational wealth. They have been excluded in a variety of different ways. I mean, shit yeah. like women couldn't have bank accounts right, right. up That's until right. a certain point like they had to have husbands co-signed right mm -hmm. so then you think about for the yeah. generation of people where that shifted where they went from not being able to being able to have a bank account mm -hmm. like how did that impact their assessment of money value savings giving back to the community judgment That's around right. the fact that if they did start to accrue wealth you know what did that look like that's right. That's right. Well, something that popped in my head, Lisa, that I know we don't have time to flesh out uh, in this episode, but something that we need to think about because you brought this to my attention months and months ago about the nonprofit starvation cycle that organizations kind of get into this spin cycle that they can't get out of. I'm wondering, especially because a lot of nonprofit leaders are overwhelmingly women and people of color, are we not doing the very same thing on a personal level that we're putting ourselves into this right. nonprofit leader yeah. uh, uh, starvation cycle where I only have a hundred bucks to my name mm -hmm. for the next three weeks, but they need X, Y, Z at the nonprofit office. So I will do without for them to have X, Y, Z. That is yeah. a very real sentiment. Yeah, that connection, like the personal to the organizational, how that is happening and then how that's mm -hmm. just reinforced by our culture, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And this idea that to spend any of that money on yourself that you're earning is bad, right? right. Like that's right. not okay to spend right. it on yourself because there are people that need it. Um, exactly, yeah. Yeah. And I don't, that's a learned, it's learned behavior. Like that's not, you know, that's, that's our culture doing that, isn't it? Um, 
Oh, yes. Wow. Oh, yes. Well, and then the let me throw one more extra credit piece in here that I'm thinking about, right. Lisa, is that when I think about especially people of color, especially Protestant Christian people of color, that's where a lot of theology comes in and creeps into how we manage that or will always be among us. That's part of scripture. And so the question is, how do you respond to that? Is it the we we don't want to make it seem like, oh, the poor will always be among us, so it's no need to do anything because they'll just always be here versus they're always among us. So what are we going to do in order to make sure that we are taken care of and we are not poor in spirit by actually caring that there are others that unfortunately live in a place and space where they can't provide for themselves? Both and. And I think What's the word, Lisa? Exploitation. That's our favorite word. We're going to get like a hoodie with yes. exploitation on it. Because yep. I think yep. th that is another layer of the religious exploitation of you're not a good Christian unless you give this amount of money to X, Y, Z. And I am very big as a Christian. I am very big on tithing. I give to small, uh, small churches, large churches, the ones that align with my values. But at the same time, that money is not walking out the door if these two little boys aren't fed either. And it's a cycle of sowing and reaping that I personally believe in as part of my faith. But if you don't have something to sow, then you can't reap, which means that nobody eats. Yeah. That's what makes sense to me. But I think the religious exploitation piece adds yet another layer onto yes. all of what we've already talked about. So, yeah. Yeah, I was like weeping inside as I was listening to this story. But yet at the same time, I know that it's going to be a, a learning process because I, I know what it feels like to have passion around a particular thing that, you yeah. know, will never make enough money to pay the bills. Nonprofit work is not necessarily created to pay your bills like that or to make right. you affluent. So, uh. no. And yet the expectation is that, you know, or not the I think there's an expectation, but the, the reality is that, yeah, as you had said, nonprofit work is primarily um, done by women, folks of color, disabled mm -hmm. people, people who have been harmed in some way and are trying to right those wrongs so that that harm doesn't That's continue, right. right? And yet That's it's right. like underpaid, under-resourced, not valued. Um, and so then that spiral continues. So, Absolutely. all right, well, on that happy note, <laughs> I think we will wrap up for this week. Hopefully phases one, two, and three gave you some food for thoughts you can think about. Um, we were excited to have this discussion this week. So Dr. Shauna, where can folks find us? Oh, goodness. They can find us a lot of places. They can find us on YouTube um, at Unfazed, Unedited. If you search for those words, you will find us there. And it's pretty cool that it does provide uh, the transcript as well in YouTube. So that's pretty cool, especially if you're looking for some words or some concepts there. You can find us on Instagram, Unfazed Pod. We're still there. We've been there for, gosh, a couple years now. Find us on LinkedIn, Unfazed Pod. Um, and of course, if you have a question or something you would like for us to answer, email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com. We like to hear what you have to say. Um, and of course, if you just want to peruse, go back and look at the uh, the archives that we have and pick a topic to listen to. You can find that at www.unfazedpodcast.com where you can access everything, old, new, you name it, will always mm -hmm. be there. Okay. So hopefully you like this week's episode. We were, we were hard on the businesses and nonprofits we were, and so forth. Yeah, we did go hard on that, didn't we? 
We did. We did. Um, so if you liked this episode, please like it, subscribe to the Unfazed podcast, leave a review, and share with your friends, coworkers, others uh, in this particular phase of your life. So we'll see you next week. See you next week.